Hello and welcome back to Indie Filmopolis, hosted by the third place winners of the infamous Jackrabbit Slim's Dance Contest. Myself, Mike Bourne and Philip Pugh. We were definitely robbed. Indie Filmopolis is a podcast dedicated to indie films, covering the making of our very own low budget indie film, Own Worst Enemy, as well as the indie classics and new releases that we love, along with a small sprinkling of movie trivia on top. In the first episode, we talked about the conception of Own Worst Enemy. In episode two, we went through many aspects of the pre-production process. And so this episode, we arrive at filming. And we'll be going over our experiences of shooting our micro-budget feature. We'll also go over our favourite and least favourite directorial debuts by great directors. As Own Worst Enemy is in its fifth year of production now, to make ourselves feel a little better as well, we'll be running down our top 10 movies that took years, sometimes decades, to complete. We're also going to do a review on indie features My Friend Dharma and Extraction, the short film The Faceless Man, as well as do a retrospective on the classic no-budget action film Assault on Precinct 13. And then to round things off, we're going to have a look at some other shorts and features that are currently crowdfunding. If you're here with us because you're one of our amazing Indiegogo supporters, hello! Thanks for coming back and sticking around. As ever, we are eternally grateful for your continued support. If you've stumbled across us by other means, hello to you too! Thanks for joining us and supporting our podcast. We hope our thoughts and insights into the making of a low-budget film and other indie flicks in general will be informative and entertaining. We're pleased to say that as well as being available via SoundCloud, Indie Filmopolis is now available via iTunes as well. You can subscribe to us via either service to make sure you'll get notified as soon as we upload a new episode. For those of you who don't yet know, Own Worst Enemy is a low-budget British dark comedy drama with horror undertones. It centres around a reclusive man named Andy and the fictitious friends and enemies he creates in order to justify his self-imposed exile. Stars myself as both Andy and his imaginary friend slash foe Mr. P, and he's written and directed by Phil Pugh. The film also features Aussie actor Matthew Waters, Hollyoaks Terry Dwyer, and James and Oliver Phelps, better known to many as the Weasley twins from the Harry Potter film franchise. Let's start off though with an update on Own Worst Enemy. Unfortunately, last month we had some sad news. One of our friends, who worked on Own West Enemy, Ben Lewis, uh, passed away in August after a long struggle with mental illness. Phil? Yeah, so we, we mentioned Ben briefly last, last time, but he was quite an integral part of Own West Enemy. Even though he wasn't there on a day-to-day basis when we were shooting, he was just a really supportive person throughout the whole process. I met Ben uh, eight years ago, a production company that I started working at, sort of started off as guess as my kind of mentor uh learned a lot from him and we quickly became friends and um, equals and uh, he began to help me out on my little projects and stuff yeah um and when almost enemy came about and i was talking to him about it he uh introduced me to laura howie who's the dop he was a talented filmmaker in his own right but he was also a very gifted uh, motion graphics designer as well one of the things that we needed for Homeworld Cinema were these uh, the weather backdrops yeah. and intros for the weather report. So he helped me uh, develop those. He was a, the sort of person that I could rely on for honest feedback. I always sent him my short films at various stages. And he always came back very quickly with 
very good constructive notes and uh, yeah I'm, I'm sad that I'm not going to be able to share almost any with him and uh, and get his thoughts and feedback on, on the edit um, and sad that he won't be able to see the completed film but like, he, like I said he was he was a great help he wasn't always around on the set but uh, one particular incident when we were doing our one of our pickup days he suffered a lot from anxiety and you never kind of wanted to put him in a position where he felt obliged to be anywhere yeah so i wasn't sure that he was going to be on that pickup shoot but not only was he there he was one of the first people there in free part he might have been the first person there and it i'm so glad that he did uh, decide to come that day because um just like any film that I've ever scheduled it was running behind that day and um, Ben stepped in he, you know he could see that we were running behind and like I said he was a filmmaker in his own right so um, so he uh, he stepped in and said look give me give me some shot lists there's a spare camera around I'll I'll do some shots for you and he sort of took a few uh, crew that was waiting on me and Laura and he had his own little splinter second unit and almost saved the day in that respect because we were we, we got everything done that we needed to do on that day yeah but anyway Ben we uh, we raise a, a glass of blue milk to you and uh, thanks for everything thank you Ben if you feel that this is something that resonates uh, with yourself uh, don't keep it to yourself there are many organizations out there will be able to offer you help and support not just for yourself but maybe for family members that you're aware of that are struggling. Uh, in the UK, there is mind.org.uk. In the US, there is mentalhealthamerica.net. And in Australia, there is mentalhealthcommission.gov.au. Okay. So, Phil, how's the edit going? It's Yeah, it's going pretty well. Um, but find out about Ben was sort of like a bit of a setback that kind of uh, knocked me yeah. uh, a little bit. But on the on the whole, it's been um, it's been going well. We're at a stage now where there's kind of loads of little bits uh, to scenes to do. There's no um, all all the scenes are edited, like we mentioned before, um, and so within each scene, there's like little bits to do, which is a really great position to be in, because previously, trying to work on the film, I've kind of had to have at least a day free to kind of get into the mindset and work on a scene and just be completely focused on that scene you can't really jump in for an hour here or there to work on scenes from the ground up but with completed scenes there might just be like the odd thing that needs to be tweaked or changed or whatever that might take me an hour or two and so it's in a really great position now where if I do have a spare couple of hours or an hour I can just jump on and work on the film and it's awesome. You don't have to dedicate the days. Absolutely. And so one of the, the ways that I've um, sort of stumbled across to to help kind of manage that process is, do you know Silicon Valley, the TV show? I've heard of it, I've not seen it, but I'm aware of it. So I started watching that uh, fairly recently, and in in that show near the, near the beginning, they're building up this app, and this, they've got sort of like a project manager. Yeah. And they're at a position where there's just all these kind of like little bugs and whatever that need sorted out so they, this guy comes along and writes all the things that need sorted on post-it notes sticks them to the board and then the coders they come along they rip off the post-it note and so the two coders between them are sort of challenging each other how many post-its they can do um, and i just thought that was a really good idea in terms of organizing the process that i'm i'm now at with the with the edit so as you'll know above my desk 
there's a massive whiteboard which is divided into a sort of like a massive grid yeah. and each block is a, a scene and it says on there the location what's happened yes. and whatever and so i used to kind of write into each section on the actual whiteboard what needs to be done but it's sort of it's so big and messy now you can barely read it yeah so from seeing that in silicon valley i've now kind of written down on post-it notes what needs to be adjusted in each scene and each little bit has its own post-it note so it's all slapped in the appropriate scene and so whenever i've got an hour or two spare just go in take down a a post-it note at random sit down do do the alteration or whatever and so I'm constantly kind of looking for ways to organise this process because we talked before I had it for a a day job but my experience is apart from the odd um, feature length documentary it's been mostly short form content so trying to organise this massive feature has been been interesting so that's one of the ways I've found to help it isn't something you can just have in your head like a short you you can't absorb it all as one big piece now by breaking it down you've definitely that's a good tip. So yeah, so that's um, that's the edit at the minute. So um, we've had a few questions come in. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. Let's start with the first one. Uh huh. From Mark Bowden, which I think he's more apt for you to answer via mm-hmm. Twitter. He asks, "What editing software do you use?" Um, using Adobe Premiere for for this film, which is what I use for most things. Adobe Premiere, excellent. Adobe Premiere, Creative Cloud. Excellent. Yeah. I've had a question of a, uh, an Andrew Knight uh-huh. through Facebook, and he asks, what's it like being the only cast member on set? Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, it was very weird. I didn't really view myself as a cast member, because um, there was, like, it was just me, and then there was a, uh, the, the crew, and I just kind of saw myself more as the crew, a person doing yeah. a job. Everybody was there to do something. Mm-hmm. When we were all on set, I had to do my piece. You had to direct. Mm-hmm. Laura did uh, the camera work. We had uh, Ben and Paul and many others running around. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really see myself as as isolated from the crew in that sense as a as a cast member. That was just the title that I had. But yeah, so that's where we're at with Own Worst Enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, for this podcast, episode by episode, we're going to go through the whole process of making Own Worst Enemy from its initial stages right through to its completion. Mm. We've previously already talked about the conception and pre-production of the film, and now we're up to the filming, which we did in four major stages. So this episode, we're going to cover our first stage of filming. Mm. And if I'm right, the first stage of filming actually was the weather reports. That's right. So I think it was in the February... It was it was, it was definitely a couple, it was a early, couple, about a couple of months before. It was a this. couple of months before the main shoot. Yeah. So a big part of the, the film is Mike's relationship with this fictional weather presenter, um, who's played by Terry Dwyer. And the original intent was that we would get these weather reports done way ahead of time, uh, get the weather backgrounds in, get them all edited so we could play them back on set. That didn't transpired for many reasons one of them being the whole telly fiasco <laughs> um, um so but but anyway you know we went in with good intentions to get them done ahead of time um and so that first day we did was it nine weather reports i think oh, eight yeah, eight did. from terry and one from ryan Richard. ryan, ryan Richard, yeah because he came on set and 
He was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. He was he was great. Terry was fantastic as oh, well. Yeah, um, she, was, she was so professional, knew exactly yeah. what she would have to do. And it was great to have that first day out of the way and just get everyone together, just see how it was going to go and have this day a couple of months ahead of the main shoot so we had a bit of an idea of how uh, the crew dynamic was going to be even though character dynamic was obviously going to be completely different but just to get everyone together and just get a feeling for it was really awesome and I think it's probably the only day in the whole of the the film where it was on schedule <laughs> and we finished ahead of schedule I'm pretty sure yeah we did a lot of um, the uh, some of the photos that you see that's right uh, we had um, we had the photos done that day as mm-hmm. well and that was good that was a good day of day around because I got the chance to uh, That's meet right. up with Terry and get a feel of some of the costumes that yeah. I was going to wear mm-hmm. uh, so that was the first time I'd actually tried some of the stuff that Phil had lovingly found at the back of um, charity stalls <laughs> and uh, in the you know buried along with treasure that pirates had left in the <laughs> 1870s well we, I think the only costumes that I bought was with you and then we had somebody Jenny Jenny that's right um, she'd, she'd, bought she'd bought some as well and she'd um, helped with Terry's costumes, and Terry was really great actually. Um, she had approached a clothing company oh, yeah. and said, "I'm doing this film. I need nine changes of clothes. Can you help me out?" And so this <laughs> this company sent her all these um, outfits for her. Oh, fantastic! So yeah, poor Terry. She had to. I think she was in London at the time. I think she was rehearsing a play in London. Had That's to come right. up with these nine costumes on her arm, plus a suitcase and everything. Uh, up to Birmingham, so yeah, so that was great that she sorted all that out actually. And um, Kevin Powis, we talked about him last time. He he shot it. He set the the whole thing up, the green screen and the auto cue, and took care of all of that for us. And that was just like a really smooth. And like I said, about it, it was went all downhill from it. Went pretty much. It was the only day that went went perfectly to plan. But I, I guess a lot of that was due to the fact that um, it was a relatively easy scenes it was you know reading off an auto cue although there was there was a certain level of performance that it wasn't just reading off an auto cue there was a this really great kind of undertone to Terry's performance this very kind of sinister which she ramped up yeah, through the whole thing it started very natural so yeah that was that, that was the first day and that was coincidentally just down the road from our main location yes it was or uh, just up the road rather up, up the hill. But basically, it was it was a literal stone's throw from was, yeah. uh, the location that we ended up using, which is in the uh, just on the cusp of the Licky Hills and a place called Cofton Hackett. Mm-hmm. Fantastic name for a place. Um, we were hoping to film there for two weeks. That was yeah. that was the scheduled time that um, both yourself and Nigel had managed to negotiate for the, the time in this. Uh, location. Well, that, that's that's the time that I wanted to. To shoot, I wanted to film it in two weeks. I thought it was plausible because it was one actor and, for the most part, um, very simple shots. Um, There's nothing too crazy going on in terms of the the vis- cinematic visuals. But <laughs> the problem was when we first set on doing a 10-day shoot, I think I had a 69-page script. Yeah. And as we were going on, I kept adding pages to it but yeah. not adding any more days to film. Um, so that was one issue, but we also had you know, other issues. We talked about them in the first uh, episode of the podcast. It just took a long time um, with Andy's performance. Yeah, the way to quicken up a lot of getting the scenes done was actually do the filming room by room and get all yeah. the scenes in that room done. We started in the bedroom, and I remember the first day 
I'd given you a set of keys to the location because I knew that there was no way I was going to be the first one there, and I, <laughs> I didn't want I didn't want people waiting outside, and I knew you'd probably be one of the first. So you had a set of keys, and then when we came in um, the first morning, you'd got there super early. You knew what scene we were going to shoot first, and you'd put on your costume, and you were lying in the bed uh, ready to shoot, and everyone was kind of working around you um, to light the scene. And well, I thought it was easy just to stuff. get there and get out the way. No, you were, you were in the way, though, because oh, we were trying to put, oh, now you tell we, we were trying to put up curtains while you were lying in the bed, curtains in the window behind the bed, <laughs> and that was all good. Um, and so, yeah, the, the first few days we were in the bedroom, um, and we moved on into the tiny oh, little the bathroom, bathroom in the world. The bathroom was brilliant. <clears throat> I love that. I'd be doing shower scenes, and um, I'd have to pretend that there was something happening outside the show. You, you know, you, where you hear something, but you're not sure. And pull this curtain back and there's nothing there. Except in this case, in this tiny bathroom about the size of Tom Thumb's uh, own bathroom, um, were about six or seven crew members. There was like Laura crammed down somewhere with a the camera. There was Phil behind there. There was Paul and Ben doing clapperboards. I had some of the other cast, Neil which we'll get on to. Neil doing sound. There was other cast members reading, uh, checking scripts. There was Tanya... Um, making sure that my makeup looked right under the lights. Mm. And, oh, oh yes, yes, those were most amusing. <laughs> Especially was that people were crammed in certain positions and had to stay still when we said action. They, could, yeah, they couldn't was, move. It was difficult. And there was one particular shot, poor Laura. She was on the floor, I think, yeah. up, up, like literally kind of under the toilet almost somehow, crammed. Uh, oh, that was really. I mean, she, was, she was fine about it, though. She was like, it's cool. Um, but, yeah, that was... Uh, uh, the least envious uh, job of all, I think. Um, yeah. I think one of the worst days for her was, was we were coming to the end of a day and there was just these few scenes to do and she, we couldn't quite get the light right in the living room and she mm -hmm. wanted a, there was a lamp and she says, look, that might just be a lovely lamp. Is it? Is this fine to plug in? And we thought, well, we haven't tried it really. You know, we, you know, we bought it from a charity shop and it hadn't been tested, so she yeah. brought it in, tested it, and blew all the fuses. Yeah. All the fuses tripped. We were lucky because it was the end of the day. It was only about half an hour, three quarters of an hour left of the day to go. Maybe, maybe a bit more than that. It, it, it seemed... wasn't. It wasn't a huge amount. I know that. Um, well, it was certainly very frustrating. Even though it was like maybe an hour off our day, it was still. We were probably still an hour or two behind anyway so yeah. i think we must have been filming on a sunday because the location we had the, the person who owned the building he he worked next door and he wasn't there there was nobody there who could come and um sort the um the electric i guess the fuse board must have been in the other building it was yeah so um, he, said he just flipped the switch and everything yeah so we, so we needed him to come down so he did that yeah like you said did that first thing in the morning but yeah that was a, a nightmare by the end of the first week it was very clear that we weren't going to make the schedule as as proposed so we just strive to do as many rooms as possible um so we were filming in the bathroom the bedroom the lounge the hallway and the kitchen and i always thought if we wouldn't get back into the location we could easily mock up a hallway to look like that hallway because there was nothing to it yeah um and because we'd never seen the kitchen we could use any kitchen That's it wouldn't true. matter Fortunately, we could go back in a couple of months later. It was still available. Yeah. Um, but the the intention was we just do the rooms that we had to do in that place. And we made it just about leaving just the one exterior shot and, like I said, the hallway and the kitchen shots. Yeah. 
Uh, I think another thing you did to save time, we, we used two cameras. Yeah, so I think after, well. again, yeah, after the first, we were just shooting on the, the one camera. The person who would find that the most difficult actually was the, the sound people, because you've got two frame lines then. But in actual fact, he, he just worked with it and he was fine. So we, we ended up with even more footage then. It was stressful at times, uh, admittedly, especially trying to get certain scenes and get them completed, but we did have a bit of fun along the way. Mm-hmm. It has to be said, it relieved the stress. Uh, and one of them was my birthday. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you celebrated how old were you? 30, I was 39. 20 or 21? Yeah, 21, sorry, yes. yes. I was 21 and still am. Yeah, I was 39, mm-hmm. and I wasn't expecting, I just mentioned it, but I wasn't expecting anything, and I got a lovely surprise of a nice, big, beautiful yeah, got- chocolate-covered cake. And my wife was there that day as well, and she mm-hmm. helped celebrate it. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was a nice surprise. And um, there were other instances as well of jollity. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how or why you came with us or what, what we even need to. I think we were going to pick up lunch or something. I mean, most of the time we we prepared lunch there, and I just think this one day we just thought oh, we'll just go out and buy people lunch. And so we it. just we went. You, it was we, you, we gonna, you, me, and Sam. Yeah. Sam the, Sam the makeup artist. And for some reason, I, can't, I still don't know why. But they dressed me up to look like an old man. Well, you already were. You were dressed up as Andy. That was it. You were, you, we didn't and dress you up like an old man. <laughs> you, you were already in Andy's costume, and you just... Um, someone must have made a joke about, oh, it looks like you're taking Grandad out for for lunch or something. Okay. And then you... So we played on it at the well, local No, we, you, you played on it. <laughs> you played along by not telling anybody. <laughs> and so I'd be t- pretending that I was, uh, you know, arthritically... Overcome and a bit senile as well. Oh yes, yes, and going down slopes while making sure that either you or Sam held my yeah. hand as I did so. Mm-hmm. I even had the joy of finding Licky Rock. Yeah, Licky. Explain. Well, Licky Hills. We're at the Licky Hills, and I can't remember why you mentioned it, but you said you would just be hysterical if you found Licky Rock, mm-hmm. and the shop actually sold long rock. So, uh, <laughs> British people will know exactly what rock is, but for... Well, American and Aussie friends, yes. Um, rock, which is like a hard sweet, but it's it's circular, it's cylindrical. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually about um, half a foot long. And you can sometimes have words scribbled on the inside, mm-hmm. like Blackpool is the usual thing. And that and it's called rock. Mm. Uh, I don't know why it's called rock, but that's just the name of it. It's probably because it's rock hard. Well, that's it. Yeah, you, you bite it off, you can uh, crunch it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, like it's a boiled a sweet. sweet. Yeah, yeah, like a boiled sweet. Of yeah. all the places to find rock, it's normally like a seaside thing. It definitely a seaside. You find it in all the big major seaside mm. resorts that they have. Uh, yeah, so in the middle of the country <laughs> <laughs> to find licky rock. Yeah. Take the it. irony is there is a road called Licky Rock in Licky. Oh, is there? there is, yes. <laughs> so yeah, we were taking Grandad around to buy everyone lunch that day. And we found some Licky mm-hmm. Rock. There were people that, that would come in, there'd be scenes where I'd have to, obviously, yeah. um, speak to myself. It'd, mm-hmm. be, it'd be Andy speaking to Mr P. Or yeah, so we talked previously Mr. about or... Ivor, but Ivor wasn't always available. Um, or just couldn't always make, you know, we didn't one sometimes I guess <laughs> um, so yeah we, we had other people sometimes it had to be the crew drafted yeah. in very occasionally I'd do it sometimes the makeup artists the makeup artists yeah I've been 
Matt Strode. Matt Strode. Ben did it one time. Yeah. The time then when we got almost told off for being there was the time he was reading the script with you when <laughs> when the location manager um, thought we were having a massive argument. <laughs> but it was just you shouting at Ben That's it. from the script. And he was about to come and tell us off. Yeah. We had this argument all mm-hmm. better off. Yeah. Than off which is great. But that brings us nicely to the front door as well. Yeah. And we'd have unintended visitors. So the one like kind of really weird problem with this house was the front door opened outwards. Yeah. And like in any other scenario that wouldn't be an issue. Even that's really odd. You don't have front doors that open outwards. Well, it, but it wouldn't be an issue if Andy wasn't this guy who's really scared of the outdoors so that I thought there's no way he's going to have a door that opens outwards no. it's going to have to be a door that opens inwards so fortunately my neighbours a couple of doors down had replaced their front door and there was a front door lying outside their place and we said can we have it he said they said yeah please take it so we we didn't take off the door the place had two front doors <laughs> we, we screwed one that opened inwards and one that opened outwards and then when we were filming in the hallway with the door, the front door, we just pulled back the front that, door. Um, so it was out of sight. But yeah, it was kind of really strange to have. Um, by we, next... We'd have people knock on the door, open the door, and go, Oh, yeah. right, I got <laughs> We had the lunch. We had lunch delivered one day. I remember. Yeah, a couple of in times. Yeah, which um, be confused. Yeah, and people just constantly turn up because they thought it was the there was this place next door, which was like a community centre, and people always. Oh, is this where the brownies are meeting? Well, uh, no, <laughs> clearly not. It's got two doors. Uh, um, <laughs> that wasn't the only door, though. We had to make a door for the bedroom as well. That's right, yeah. The, so there was no door in the bedroom. And there was a door in the kitchen, but we took the kitchen door off. <laughs> and did we put that on another door, I think? I can't remember. But there was a lot of messing around with doors. And <laughs> my dad made me a, made us a door. <laughs> like for, for as good as that location was, there were a lot of like weird things with it. Well, we had to make sure we had the right door in the right location, filming on the right side yeah, of the door yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, talking about people uh, on set mm-hmm. and um, like some of the people who read in scripts, but there was also Ben who came on. Yeah, ben Wilkins. Ben yeah. Wilkins. That's right. Yeah, and he you wanted to uh, give him a role, as in. That's right. Like he was, a, I think he was taking. A, I think he just finished college. He was taking a gap year um, before going off to uni. Uh, he was a keen photographer, and he just he'd found out that I'd worked with him once. I can't remember what it was, and he'd found out that I was doing this um, film, and he wanted to get involved, and he's very eager to to be there. And then he was there for a couple of days with us. I think he, for the two day, for the two weeks that we were filming, he could do two days each week. And the first the first two days he was there, he was like he did the clapper for a little bit, but then he sort of like ended up going into the background. I never, I didn't see him, and I was just thought I thought oh, he must be like having a really bad time. I just thought you know he's not getting out of this experience what he wanted to get out of it. Um, then he said was like he did his two days, and then a couple of days later these photos we started getting tagged in these photos on Facebook, and then these amazing behind the scenes photos. Yeah, so if you go on our Facebook and you have a look see those there's all done by um ben wilkins who at the time was just finished college had to go to university um and they were just brilliant um to the point where there was one shot he did of you we had to for i can't remember what reason it was but we had to reshoot a scene in the bathroom and his behind the scenes shot was a better shot than what we'd shot (laughs) for the actual thing so i copied his behind the scenes shot 
to when we refilmed it. Oh, I didn't know that. <clears throat> it got just, like, an amazing eye. Yeah, he made me look really photogenic as well. <laughs> one of my favourite shots of that he took of me was one where I'm actually lying in the bed and yeah. my face is just turned and it, it looks really happy mm-hmm. but it's just a really light light picture and it just really seems to make me look really good they were just brilliant um, very gifted natural photographer yeah. um, and I had actually no idea like he was so kind of unobtrusive I, I, yeah I had no idea that he was doing any of these photos to be honest I don't recall him ever yeah. having his camera out which is a surprise because some of them are that's what a lot of the photos were you you almost got a snapshot of the work being mm-hmm. evolving and, yeah. and moving along. And yeah, they're just brilliant. So, uh, big thanks to Ben. Just having those was just incredible for like promotion and stuff and just being able to share them. And yeah, it did give a real great sense of working on that. Yeah, that set. They're, they're really good. He frames them so well. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest kind of time things, which I guess we didn't kind of anticipate, because at the time, were you working as a car park security I was I was working on so you were outdoors a lot of the time so you'd got a bit of a tan and but obviously Andy the reclusive man that he is wouldn't have seen the light of day for years yes you had like tan lines on your arms and around your neck and just just a general kind of glow anyway so Sam and Tanya and the other makeup people plastering you with um with white powder I think it was I think they um as the as the film went on, they would actually arrive earlier to make sure I was ready for mm-hmm. when we were going to start filming. I had to make sure I was shaved all the time, so I didn't forever not not only just for continuity, but also didn't rip off their puffballs off. Yeah, but the, they did come up with a different makeup for Andy and Mr. Pierce, so that was an additional kind of time thing when we were swapping backwards and forwards between the characters. It wasn't just getting the setups ready, often having to wait on. Andy or all Mr. P's makeup. I so do remember that, that, I did it myself once. That was on the very final day. Yes, yeah. you did. And you were like you, you were so hot because everyone was rushing and you were just like dripping with sweat and it was all clumping all over <laughs> your face. Three dress myself a couple of times. But yeah, I mean that did sort of like really kind of prove how how much Sam and Tanya were needed and how grateful we were for oh, God, yeah, the effort they put in. Because they would also. Leave it. There were times when they weren't there, but they would leave instruction mm. about the, what That's makeup right. to use and the right makeup to use. For anyone else, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're always pressed for time, and I remember we started filming the bedroom scenes yeah. and we filmed the bathroom scenes, and then we're going to move on to do all the lounge scenes, which was most of the film takes place in the lounge. Yeah, and so we were just rushing to get stuff done, and I all the the stuff was sort of in the lounge, and I'd said to you. Why, why don't you go and dress the lounge the way Andy you think like Andy it. would like it? Um, and so you did it. And then um, I came in and I was like, okay. Well, you see, one of the things that I used to do before I was a car park attendant, I used to sell furniture. Okay. So I was used to dressing living rooms to look stylish so uh-huh. people would like to buy the furniture. Yeah. So I am dressing this beautifully designed living room. And you walk in and... And I was like, this is great, but where are the crew going to go? <laughs> so like no no consideration for us whatsoever. <laughs> well of course not, but I'd love it if you bought it. <laughs> so um so yeah, we had to kind of push everything back and kind of make because I guess it does look a lot smaller than what it was. Mike's sort of took over the whole room where really we there was we probably only filmed half the room, I guess. <laughs> Just, but it did it did look good. It looked 
look like a, a proper home, but um, yeah, we needed to, to actually get people in and the lights oh, in and the cameras oh, and these you know, little I guess you were in sort of theatre mode. I don't. Know. No, I say I was preparing to sell you the furniture. I tell you one of the things we haven't talked about, which um, I'm really glad didn't happen, was um, you um, used to do a lot of work with the Crescent Theatre in Birmingham. That's right. Yeah, and during. I think it was a very specific two weeks that you said you wanted to do this because that was two weeks when there was a play on at the Crescent that you auditioned for and you wanted to do that. That's and I was really right. worried because you said that you you were going to do the, the film with us in during the day and then do the play in the evening. Can and I was like, Jesus. That. Even though I was disappointed for you that you didn't get that play, I was so happy because <laughs> it would have just had so many problems. I mean, it was a struggle enough for you to get the two characters down then the thought of you having a third character and a different thing that you were going to have to do in the evenings plus it would also mean you your time would have been limited you would have had to have gone at a certain point during the day and sometimes we just had to carry on well that's one of the reasons why we couldn't use Oliver for some of the days because he was in the oh, he was in the play well. was he yeah so yeah I mean the thought of you having to do three characters during that time I think your head would have exploded yeah um, so yeah so I was kind of I was definitely I'd glad I'd forgotten about that until you mentioned it so yeah, so when we got to the end of the, the two weeks, we we knew that we'd have to come back. Fortunately, um, Nigel, co-producer, he'd um, arranged with the the guy who owned the place for us to at least for temporarily store the the stuff there. Yeah. So we moved everything into the lounge. I think we paid him fifty quid or something just to store the stuff, which was fine. And then we came back and did a few. That was that was also another good thing was during that two months I had time to review all the footage so there was a few times that we were able to reshoot stuff and also do um, the other stuff but we'll talk about that next time because yeah. that the second time there was a whole kind of host of other logistical nightmares that yeah, we, we involving water mm-hmm. but yeah we'll cover that the next time yes we might we might do it or we might have a different um, we will at some point we'll either, talk about either next how... episode or the episode after we will talk about the, the final two bits or we might yeah. Have something different planned next week. We'll see. see. So that brings us to the end of talking about Unworst Enemy. And now yeah. on to our top ten list of those films that seem to take forever and a year or a decade to make. Mm-hmm. Like we said, it was five years ago and Unworst Enemy still uncompleted. So we thought we'd go some of, through some of the other films that also took that age to complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've left out animations because uh, it's a little unfair to do them, of course, because of the yeah. produ- pre-production post-production. And tried to stick with movies that had a little more of an indie background flavour to them. But a couple of studio funded movies might have made the mix as well. So here is our top 10 movies that took years to complete. 10. 1977, A Raise Ahead. With a budget of just $20,000, David Lynch's feature debut, A Raise Ahead, was created in a piecemeal fashion over five years. Well, Anyway. Mm-hmm. After setbacks, which included the death of uh, his cinematographer Herbert Cardwell, but the film was finally released in 1977. Yeah, it's a bit of a sort of comfort, I guess, that that film took five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're on the, the great films the track, make yeah. it. The great films make it. Nine. So there's a lesser-known film every day uh, by prolific British film director Michael Winterbottom. 
most famously known for 24-hour party people, yeah. which are really good for Every day took five years as well. Uh, it stars John Sim and Shirley Henderson, and it charts the relationship between those two. John Sim plays an imprisoned man, Shirley Henderson plays his wife, and it was shot over the course of five years, uh, a few weeks at a time. This was one that was deliberately uh, planned out to take uh, the course of five years. It was more of an artistic choice rather than a kind of a budgetary or a problematic. Do we know why? Um, was it something to do with wanting? Yeah, that, that's part of the film. It follows his five-year sentence. Eight. Um, another one uh, which actually took eight years to make was a film in 1964 called It Happened Here, which is set in an alternative reality where Nazis successfully invaded England. And it was made by directors Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Moller, uh, who began work on the film as teenagers and finished the film eight years later. It was shot on a shoestring budget, Filming equipment was mostly borrowed, and they relied on volunteers and help from others, including the likes of Stanley Kubrick, who donated unused film stock from Dr. Strangelove to help finish this film. But the film also helped launch the career of cinematographer Peter Shositsky, who would go on to shoot a load of other big-budget films, including The Empire Strikes Back. As you can tell, uh, budget was the constraint for why this film took so long, but yeah. their perseverance... To keep it going for eight years, that's that's remarkable. Mm -hmm. So there's help for help for us yet. Yes, seven. So another film that was more of a, an artistic choice to um, take the length that it did is Boyhood, which is probably one of the most famous films on this list, which a lot of people will know. Uh, written and directed by Richard Linklater, it uh, took 12 years to complete. But like I said, that was purely an artistic choice. The goal was to make a film about growing up and follows Ella Coltrane's Mason uh, from when he was seven years old up until he's 19, uh, with the production beginning in 2002 and finishing in 2013. One of the really cool things about this was he was able to edit it as he went along, so he didn't get to the end of this 12-year period and then have 12 years of footage to put together. And equally, he was writing the script as he went along as well. He didn't set out with a, a definitive story in mind. He, he let the, the characters evolve um, with, the, with the actors, what they were kind of going through and how, how they grew up. And they met once a, once a year for a few days and each, each time made a new 12 to 40 minute segment. Legally, you can't contract anybody to a period of longer than seven years for acting roles, so none of their cast were um, contractually obliged to come back year after year. He just left it in good faith that they would. Obviously, it's a big gamble, but it paid off massively. It was nominated for six Oscars, but only won the one for Patricia Arquette. Uh, it lost out mostly to Birdman, which uh, which is a good film, but I, yeah. I think the kind of, of the, the vision and the ambition yeah. of Boyhood, it should have yeah. won a few more. Six. Another film that took uh, almost an equally long time, actually a bit longer, took 13 years to make, was Hard to Be a God. It's a Russian science fiction film by Alexei German. Filming began in the year 2000 and continued shooting off and on until it finally wrapped in 2006. But then from 2006 until his death in 2013, the director worked mostly on the sound, but he died before finishing the film. Mm -hmm. The film was completed by the director's son and was screened the first time in late 2013, 13 years after the beginning of the production. I mean, was he after perfection? I know. Like, like if he hadn't died, would he still be uh, working Yeah, still on making it? it now. His son looking at his watch, thinking mm -hmm. it's 2018, Dad, keep it going. Five. A film that kind of mirrors that experience, actually, is The Evil Within, which took 15 years to make. 
Uh, it's a horror film written and directed by Andrew Getty. Filming started in 2002 and carried on sporadically for five years. Andrew Getty is one of the heirs to the Getty Oil fortune. Okay. Um, so he largely financed it himself. Uh, it cost him about six million dollars, but the film was stuck in post-production from 2007 until Getty's death in 2015. And again, he probably would have kept on working on it had he not uh, died. After his death, one of the producers completed the film and released it in 2017, 15 years after it started. Four. Another one that's actually gone on much longer for 17 years is the film Coffee and Cigarettes, directed by indie stalwart Jim Jamoosh. Coffee and Cigarettes is a feature film made up of 11 separate vignettes that centre around conversations by an array of different characters as they indulge in coffee and cigarettes. It was made over a 17-year period, starting with the Robert Benini and Steve Wright segment in 1986, which is a short film in its own right, and concluding with the Tom Watts and Nicky Pop segment that was shot in 1995. Then, about eight years later, it was finally released in 2003, but the film also features Bill Murray, Steve Buscemi, Kate Blanchett, and, and the great Alfred Molina. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine this took so long because he wanted... The- yeah, I think he started off just... I think the, the first one that he did with Stephen Wright was just a short film, and then he I just kept kind of like making them and then eventually compiled them. Okay. I think after a while he must have had the idea that this could make a feature film, so he made them with the intent of compiling them, but... He definitely started with just the idea of just this one. Well, he's making sure. films in the middle as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things for us with this one is it's got Kate Blanchett playing two roles up against herself, which very much reminded me of um, Unwest Enemy and was one of the point of references which I gave to you before we started filming. Three. I guess probably the most infamous film on the list. Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote which has just been completed and released this year. Ooh. It's been in production no less than eight different times with different actors attached to it. Uh, he started working on it actually in 1989, but wasn't able to secure any funding until 1998. He first started filming in 2000 with Johnny Depp and Jean Rochefort. Uh, that production, uh, that was hit by an avalanche of misfortune. Rochefort, uh, who'd spent seven months learning English for the role, he had to drop out because of a double herniated disc. <sighs> He, I think he spent most of the film on a horse and it just was impossible for him, he just couldn't do it. Um, there was a flash flood on the second day which washed away equipment and changed the colour of the barren cliffs, making the previous footage unusable. The production eventually fell apart in spectacular fashion. Fortunately for us, those kind of voyeurs uh, was captured on film and ended up becoming a, the fascinating documentary Lost in La Mancha, which if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out, it's one of the best behind the scenes documentaries of making a movie or not making a movie in this case and then over the preceding 16 years many actors were attached for different incarnations of the film um, but this final one with Jonathan Price and Adam Driver finally made it to the end completed and screened earlier this year in camp two and we're getting to another 19 well a 19 year one mm-hmm. called Dark Blood released in 2012, directed by George Solzier, and starring River Phoenix and Judy Davis. Uh, so it started filming in 1993. It had a very rocky production, which was only 80% complete, and was hit by the obvious tragedy of lead actor River Phoenix passing away um, of a drugs overdose 11 days before the end of the filming schedule. The footage itself then became the property of the film's insurance company, as it was never completed. 
Then the director himself, George, uh, managed to obtain the footage and have it shipped to his native Holland. Then after finally raising enough funds to complete the film, he edited, edited what footage he had, along with photos and narration to fill in the gaps. The film was finally released in 2012, 19 years after it started shooting. One. So we go from 19 years of dark blood to the whopping 48 years of Orson Welles's The Other Side of the Wind. I promise our film will never take that. <laughs> we hope not. The film itself was shot between 1970 and 1976, so it already had a quite a long filming period. The filming was completed, but financial problems meant that uh, they didn't have enough to get through post-production. So over the years, there were numerous attempts to get the film finished. In 2002, the, the network Showtime announced that they'd reached a deal to try and finish and release the film. But for some reason, Orson Welles' daughter, who had no claim to the film whatsoever, threatened a lawsuit saying that she owned the film. So Showtime backed out. Uh, in 2004, Peter Bogdanovich uh, gave fresh hope to the film being released, uh, but that never materialised. In May of 2015, directors Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach announced that they were running a campaign to raise $2 million to complete post-production and release the film. I guess that never happened or Not came to fruition. Not uh, And then finally, March of last year, 2017, it was announced by Netflix that they had purchased the rights of the film and were working round the clock to get it finished. And fortunately for us, they've done it. And it's going to be released in November of this year. An incredible 48 years after the start of shooting. That, that's amazing. Not and we promised that neither Phil or I would make any decisions about um, kicking the bucket before the end of production. I will dig Phil up personally to make sure that his reanimated hands get to the editing suite as fast as possible. But I think talking about Orson Welles in the way that we just have mm -hmm. brings us nicely on to directorial debuts. I mean, Orson Welles' directorial debut, Citizen Kane, is arguably probably one of the greatest directorial debuts there are. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're now going to talk about our favourite directorial debuts and the one and a couple that we found were pretty bad mm -hmm. by great directors. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to talk about the good debut by that great director, Peter Jackson, mm -hmm. and the film Bad Taste. I'd heard about it from friends that it contained gore that was hard to watch. Yeah. I thought, well, I'm going to watch this mm -hmm. then. And it is. I mean, it is extremely gory. It's very hard to watch. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really sort of draws you in is the very first scene. It feels like you've walked into the middle of something. Mm -hmm. It starts off with a guy in a big sort of jacket walking across a pebble beach as if he's walking out to sea. And then all of a sudden you see a guy in a nice light blue shirt mm -hmm. with Boris Johnson-like hair <laughs> walking towards him with an axe. Yeah. And he turns around and he goes, don't come any closer. And you think, well, what the hell have I just walked into? He then, this guy in this jacket just warns this guy a couple of times, doesn't say anything, mm -hmm. um, gets his axe caught on a piece of wood, can't come any further. And he goes, yeah, that's what I told you, or something like that. Realises that he's almost zombie-like, dislodges the axe and continues walking. Mm-hmm. The guy then produces a Harry Callahan-sized weapon mm -hmm. and blows the guy's head off. And when I say blows the guy's head off, half the head dissolves. It's not like it's a normal gunshot 
this thing actually rips up and you see pieces of the brain and spine showing. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, it was There was a big emphasis on this gore when the, the character falls on the guy's leg and his brains pop out all over his shoes and trousers. It was, it was such a shock to the system. It was, it was amazing. It was just something I'd never seen before. Amazing. So when you were doing your, um, your research on bad taste, did you come across, as you have previously, any um, Bollywood porno remakes? Uh, there was one, yes, mm. um, called Salty Taste, for obvious reasons. Um, you, you would have thought they wouldn't have needed to change the title. Bad, <laughs> bad Taste probably quite appropriate. Well, yes, it might have been, but you know porno films, they have to. They, it has to be a pun. Mm -hmm. It has to be a pun on something. Um, what about you? What about what? What would you say is uh, the directorial debut that struck a chord with you? I think finding it a good debut is pretty easy, but I think finding one where their debut sort of sets out kind of like a mandate for what their future films are going to be like was a bit more difficult. And so I've gone with Shallow Grave by Danny Boyle, which is very much "Hello, I'm Danny Boyle." This is a film by Danny Boyle, and that's it. that is what it is. There are other filmmakers you watch their first films, and it's very different from what they later do. Just, you know, it might be a great film, but it doesn't kind of fit in with their body of work. Shallow Grave is very much a Danny Boyle film from the get go. I just loved it. I just, it's very Coen Brothers esque in a way. Yeah, it's, it is almost a British Coen Brothers thing. Um, and also launched the um, the careers of Ewan McGregor and um, Christopher Eccleston. Christopher yeah, and it, of course it is with pretty much most of that team that he went on and did Trainspotting with. So yeah, I just think that's a, a really solid debut film. It is. What was a, a film that was a bit shit by, oh. by a good director? One of my favourite eras in film mm -hmm. was the 70s, mainly because of the action sequences and the, the, the stunts that you see in the sort of um, films that came out over the late 70s, early 80s, because they, they felt raw. These were actual stunt people doing these actual stunts and you you just marvelled at it, at it and a big sort of genre that came out in the 70s was the road movie mm -hmm. and usually that involved chase sequences you had yeah. uh, Smokey and the Bandit the Cannonball Run mm -hmm. that sort of thing and one of the bad debuts was actually by Ron Howard mm -hmm. and his uh, feature film debut which was Grand Theft Auto yeah. which involved him as the lead actor, and inevitably got all the best lines, and his uh, girlfriend eloping to Las Vegas, being chased by loads of characters. And the plot is seriously thin. I mm -hmm. mean, it's rice paper thin. Well, it's um, it's by notorious producer Roger Corman. Yes. He just yes. He literally did he just, just, he just like, shit oh. out films, and this was one of them. Yeah. I think Ron Howard wanted to get into directing, and this was a chance that he was given. But it's humorless. It's it's destruction for destruction's sake. It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the old cliche of three cameras taking slow-mo yeah. shots of cars being wrecked. And that's all it was. It was just, here's a budget, here's a car. I mean, they even ended up at a demolition derby. Mm -hmm. You can't get more cliche than that. Yeah. I mean, Smoking the Bandit ended up in the same place mm -hmm. at the end. But it was just a succession of cars being hit, driven by characters who unfortunately couldn't act. Mm -hmm. An interesting fact which I discovered was it was edited by Joe Dante, well, the guy who did Gremlins. Who's another and 
um, Roger Goldman Prosciutto, yeah. Yeah, and he edited it, mm. and the editing is bad as well, but it's it's, it's cut very fine, especially yeah. at the end. Well, knowing Roger Goldman, <laughs> it's yeah. like he probably gave him three days to cut it. It was really bad. Um, the acting from the two leads is good, and it's a, just about the only thing that made me continue watching. But there's no love in this film at all. It's it has potential, but the potential is robbed away by the inane action sequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you? Um, any bad debuts by great directors sure. that you've come across? So James Cameron, his first film was Piranha Two Yoo-hoo. of all films. <laughs> I knew James Cameron hadn't done many films, but he's only directed about seven feature films, yeah. which is nuts, and two of them are the highest grossing films of all time. Yeah. So to have that kind of legacy and then look back on his first film being Piranha 2, which was a, a micro-budget sequel to a shitty film anyway. <laughs> um, but um, it, there's, there's some nice touches to it. You can kind of see that there's like potential there. He's you know put a bit of effort into the camera work and everything but just it's not enough to make up for just a, a terrible script and bad acting there's a story that he got fired from this film and that the producer completed it and that James Cameron broke into the edit suite to cut his own version of the film uh, which sounds very James Cameron um there's a few notable interesting points he worked with Lance Hendrickson on it which obviously oh, is the first works. time he yeah. worked with him one of the interesting things I think this was made the year or two after the Ali- Ridley Scott's Alien, yeah. which of course he went on to do the sequel to. But there's a, a part in, in this film, the, the piranhas, they fly, and they can survive out of water. Well, of course. And so in one scene, there's um, a dead body in a lab, and alien fashion, this piranha pops out of the chest ah. of, uh, of this dead body and launches itself at the face of the scientist or the doctor or whoever it is. But yeah, I thought that was a, an interesting thing. He was kind of homaging Alien, not knowing that two films down the road he'd be doing the sequel to Alien. In a back catalogue of two Terminator films, Alien, the two highest grossing films of all time, and Piranha, it's quite, quite an interesting start to uh, such a... Everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. I think that now brings us on to our film reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with My Friend Dharma. Um, this is an indie film directed by Mark Myers, and it follows the, uh, the high school life of the American serial killer, Jeffrey Dharma, leading up to his first kill. It stars Ross Lynch as Dharma, and also features performances from Dallas Roberts, Anne Hirsch, and Alex Wolfe. It did the festival circuit in 2017, and was released briefly in cinemas this year, for receiving a home video release. I enjoyed it, but there was a, a couple of things for me that didn't quite work well enough. Mm-hmm. And Ross Lynch's Dharma was a very good performance. Excellent, yeah. But the problem with Dharma as a person and as the high school kid, he's, he's almost emotionless, mm-hmm. a lot of it. So to... To really show what he's like as a school kid, you you almost have to bring out some of the eccentricities mm-hmm. very subtly. So he, he needed, unfortunately, for the sort of film that I was watching, because it was almost like you were a voyeur in his life. Mm-hmm. This 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 was wasn't quite stagey as you see a lot of films, and it needed an exceptional performance because the director did want you to sympathise with Dharma's 
situation. That was the odd thing. And it's, yeah. it's one of the um, the things that I, I didn't quite like particularly. And I've seen it a lot, really, where um, directors or the writers kind of try and justify their the character's yeah. kind of state of mind or whatever. And so he portrayed his home life as quite dysfunctional, but it was no more dysfunctional than most people's home life. And yeah. they don't grow up to become serial killers. Exactly. It didn't seem to work very well on an emotional scale. I mean, there were times near the end of film where, um, and it's true, uh, Dharma was left alone in a house that both his mother and father had left. Mm-hmm. And because he was the age of 18, he wasn't considered a minor. So he basically lived in an empty house. Unfortunately, I felt the director didn't take the opportunity to um, suggest the loneliness of the existence of living mm-hmm. in this house that may have led to the way, which may have led to the way he was. There was no emphasis on the fact that this is actually quite a lonely place that mm-hmm. he is in. There was no suggestion of being brave and taking shots of immense silence or, you know, shots of other rooms mm-hmm. or just something. All we saw was this character doing this, yeah. this character. And I don't know if it was the director in that quandary, like you said before, mm-hmm. of us want, half wanting to sympathise, but half wanting to stay distant. It is a difficult subject matter because your character, you can't sympathise with them. Um, and I don't know if that was the intent, that they were trying to give a bit of background to him. So you go, OK, mm-hmm. now I understand. But I, I think much less so because what they were kind of putting across as potential reasons for him being the way he was, loads of people go through that and they don't end up being mass murderers. Yeah, I think it was almost, I feel like it was almost focused on Dharma too much. I mean, the friends call, the film's called My Friend Dharma. Mm-hmm. So maybe it should have focused on the person who saw Dharma as the friend yeah. and focused on his story and seen Dharma from a different perspective. Yeah. But we didn't get that. It was just more on Dharma than on the friend. Yeah. I don't know, it didn't... It didn't quite work for me, and I, I kind of switched off a little bit. I thought I would enjoy it more. I don't know if you knew, but the film was actually based on a graphic novel. So no, I didn't the friend that. is um, the guy who Alex Wolf plays, who's yeah. the cartoonist. He's always doing doodles and yeah. whatever. Um, and so, obviously, he grew up with him, and he became a an illustrator in real life, and he made this graphic novel about his experiences growing up or going through high school with Jeffrey Dahmer, yes. which I think is actually really cool. Like you're a you're a graphic artist and you've got this real life story to tell and you do it in your medium. Translating that from a graphic novel to a film, I don't think it worked particularly well. One of the things that kind of stuck out for me is I felt the kind of the whole setting was very cartoony. I thought the production design, it was like a cartoon version of the 70s. And for me, that kind of lost the realism there. I found it hard to get on board this being actual real life yeah a real life event or series of events yeah. so big kahuna burgers how many out of five um i'm gonna have to give it uh two i'm afraid um it's a film that does that's got ambition but it's in the wrong direction mm-hmm. for me um i'm gonna give it three because of i thought the performances were awesome fully committed cast um, and it's just a shame that there wasn't I guess the the script or the the direction to fully carry off a portrayal of this real life I mean when you look into what he did it's horrific really and it's um, you're right it doesn't quite amount to what it should be I think so that was uh, my friend Dharma Mm. and the 
next one we're going to review was Extraction, directed by Nia Paneri. Extracted, which was the American title, is known as Extraction in the UK, uh, is an independent sci-fi drama about a scientist who develops, or sorry, who invents a technique to watch people's memories. After he finds himself stuck in the memories of a heroin addict, he tries to uncover the truth about whether the man committed murder and to es- the ability to escape back mm-hmm. into his own body. The budget for this film was just $100,000 and premiered at South by Southwest Festival in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not a recent film, but I wanted to find one that you, you might like. I wanted to find like a, a sci-fi uh, fantasy yeah. indie film. I liked it. I liked the fact that uh, it was... Um, I like the idea of the, the concept yeah. of it. And I do like the idea of how you could take something like big budget, where you would mm-hmm. normally associate with big budget to sci-fi, and make it into an indie feature. So this worked for me. Yeah. What didn't work for me, surprisingly, was the cover. The oh, DVD yes. cover yeah. it comes in. It gives off this really sort of flashy thing. Mm-hmm. And it actually says on the CD cover, it's a sci-fi thriller. And it's got the mind-blowing effects of this and that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, that oversells it. Yeah. It's not. Well, unfortunately, it's a sci-fi that's, drama. And that's what distribution companies do, unfortunately. Yeah, and unfortunately, the, obviously, the distribution company didn't bother watching the film. If they'd well, sold it as a sci-fi drama, mm-hmm. it probably would have made more money. It's weird that it sounds yeah, like that. Yeah. But the, the the DVD cover let it down, mm-hmm. let's... Let the film down for me a little bit, but I liked the concept. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought for yeah. the, for the budget, I thought um, it's great. It's one of those films that really worked to its budget. It didn't yeah. try and do cheap effects or anything like that. It it had a, a great concept which could work on a very yeah. small budget. And the twists uh, that you there was actually a couple of twists at the end, mm-hmm. and they worked really well um, as well. Um, they were set up cleverly, yeah. um, and just, um, when they when the twist happened, you were fully informed of how it had been set up as well. So yeah. you you weren't lost with how they reached the conclusion. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very cleverly written, um, nicely acted, yeah, as well. So yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Um, Kahuna Burger wise, um, I think as a film itself. I'd probably give it three, but for its ambition and its budget, I'd probably nudge it up to four. I'm going to give it a four because the thing, the only thing that knocks it off the five is strangely the DVD mm-hmm. um, selling aspect of it, which for me is part of making a film. Okay. Um, but otherwise, um, think of it as a sci-fi drama. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the concept, sit back and enjoy a great film. As yeah. an, as an indie sci-fi film. It's it's a great film to so go back and refer to if you want to make an indie sci-fi of your own. Yeah, there aren't there aren't many, and for obvious reasons. Um, but th- these guys pulled it off. I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, they did. And our last review uh, brings us to a short, "The Faceless Man." Mm-hmm. This is a, a little bit of a strange, offbeat fable about a disillusioned man who wakes up and discovers his face has transformed into a mirror. But he was still venture out in the world to reclaim his identity and go about his day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by Jeremy Foley, and it did the festival circuit last year, and he's now available for you to watch for free on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. What did you think? I liked it. It yeah. was it. It started weird, and then when people saw his face, mm-hmm. it became obvious to me straight away what was happening. They were seeing a reflection 
of themselves. Yeah. He couldn't understand that. And he was talking in almost voiceover mode. Mm -hmm. um, we were hearing his thoughts yeah. and everything else. Mainly because he hadn't got a mouth to talk. <laughs> but straight away, that's what it became, a reflection of himself. Um, which is a very sort of Buddhist philosophy, almost. I loved it. I thought um, it did what a short film should do. It's experimental, it was weird, it was completely different. Yeah. Um, I, I liked that it was a you know, concept-led short film. I thought it had a bit of a kind of a, a throwback style, almost. It, it seemed like the sort of short films that you'd watch in the early 2000s. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people these days making short films, they either make short films that are sort of a version of what they want to make a feature of. Yeah, it's a conceptual or, or a piece. Show, or a sort of a, a showreel piece for what they want to do. Um, and so I liked that this wasn't anything like that. Uh, it was very much a standalone thing. So I thought it was really cleverly shot. Surprisingly, no CGI effects used. When you watch it, you'll see that, like Mike said, he's got a, a mirror for a face. And so it must have been incredibly difficult to not catch any crew members or camera equipment or the cameras itself. Boomstick. Yeah. A logistical nightmare, really, is to, to get those shots. shots sure yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. And trying to make your mark as well would have been really difficult. So, very ambitious short film. Really liked it. It's got a good vibe to it, feel to it. It's very kind of, I don't want to say family friendly, but it's at least. Um, it's got a Pixar feel about it. It's as if the people at Pixar have come up with a live action version of yeah. it to do a cartoon, and this is mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That's what it felt like. So, Kahuna Burgers, for me, I enjoyed it, but it's a bit weird for me. Too weird for you. A bit weird for me. So, I'll give it four. A oh, generous, that's good. I'll, I'll give it a four out of five with a side order of fries. Yeah, I, I'd give it a four as well. Um, Do you want to share my fries or add some of your own? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll have a few of yours. Um, on the whole, just a, a really well made film, really nice concept, really different. Uh, and like I said, I think it did what a short film should do, uh, be something in its own right. That brings us nicely on to our retrospective look at the 1976 uh, indie film Assault on Precinct 13. This is a film by John Carpenter in which an unlikely partnership develops between a highway patrol officer, two criminals and a station secretary and they defend a Los Angeles precinct against a siege of bloodthirsty street gangs. This is harks back a little bit to the George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead mm -hmm. uh, sort of concept of a band of strangers grouping together to help defeat an otherworldly presence um, such as the Bloodthirsty Street Gang and John Carpenter's really experimenting here with his camera work and his ideas but for me one of the things I really enjoyed about it was the, the build up to this scene at the end which is edited in the most extraordinary way. John Carpenter famously does most of the music for his own films. Mm -hmm. And with it, the editing of the final siege by the, the gangs on the police station, and it cuts with the beat of the music to each particular scene. It cut to the secretary, then to a, a disaster then another character then the street gangs and then the jail and then the, oh it beats along almost i think it's almost done to the rhythm of a heartbeat and it it just all of a sudden you're just caught up with it and it is an amazing amazing feat of editing i disagree it just did nothing for me 
I don't know. This is just basically a tacky B movie, as far as I'm concerned. It's just—it's one of those films that I think is a victim of its budget. I think it there's certain aspects of it where it just looks very student filmy. The bit where he shoots the girl is just so dumb. It's so goofy. There's so many ways that you could have shot and edited that, but they chose. In, obviously, they didn't have money for squibs and things like that, yeah. so it looked like they just lo- lobbed a uh, like a, a balloon full of red dye at the girl's chest, and it just looks ridiculous. <laughs> and I just think that there are better ways to uh, work with a, a low budget, and this just wasn't it. There's no story there whatsoever. The characters, you don't get to know them. I don't care if any of them died. I couldn't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) But I I really enjoyed it. Not one of my favourite films, but it's a film I'd happily watch again. Kahuna Burgers? Um, It's it's a four, definitely. I'd give it three for ambition, but one for the film itself. So you're giving it two Kahuna Burgers, less the pickles? I'm giving it one. (laughs) (laughs) So as you know, Almost Cinema was funded partially through Indiegogo, and I'm personally a big supporter of uh, crowdfunded films, but I haven't uh, supported any films for quite a while, just sort of been out of the loop, really. Um, But I thought it'd be nice for us to kind of pay it forward, really. We've had a lot of help and support from so many people on our Indiegogo campaign, and we've got a bit of a platform here, so why not promote some others that are trying their best? We've got a couple that we're going to talk about. But uh, if you have got a Indiegogo or Kickstarter or any other crowdfunding platform-based campaign going on for your feature or short, let us know. Uh, we'll check it out, and if we like it, we'll uh, we'll talk about it. Definitely. And we might even donate to it as well. Let's talk about Patreon, yeah. which is a film by Emily Hay and Alan Young. We became aware of this because we've been talking to Alan over our new, brand new Twitter. Yeah. Patron is a social horror in the vein of Stepford Wives and Get Out that builds to a wild, abstract and Lynchian climax. Mm-hmm. So it's a very apt short film for for these uh, Me Too Time's Up uh, time, campaign right. times. It's also notable. It's got a it's got two directors, one male, one female, and there's obviously there's a big push on uh, female filma- filmmakers at the minute. So if that sparks um, interest, uh, go over and check their campaign out. If you search for Patreon on Indiegogo, they are currently crowdfunding for the next few days. They are hoping to reach £5,000. I'll be chipping in in a bit. But anyway, yep, good luck to you guys. Hope you raise your money and um, have a successful shoot. And look yeah. forward to seeing the finished product. Uh, another film that I stumbled across on Indiegogo again is called The Head by Michael Keane. Uh, this is um, what he terms a VHS horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, romance. Well, Horror romance. Horror romance, of course. Where uh, a, a lovely young man falls in love with a mannequin head. The thing that stood out um, for me with this campaign was the video. Um, brilliant. Very funny. Very self-effacing. Yeah. So if you like a video nasty slash horror comedy, definitely check that out. It looks like a good one. Yeah, the The, perks look pretty good Yeah, on this one. um, This is a feature and he's trying to raise $10,000, which isn't a huge amount, but he's only shooting on VHS, so it should do. Yeah, and not on Betamax for reasons he gives if you watch the the video. But yeah, if nothing else, check out the video on Indiegogo. Uh, Look for The Head 
a VHS horror romance, and you'll find the video there. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And again, good luck to you guys. And just to reaffirm, if you are crowdfunding on any platform for your short feature, drop it over to us and we'll check it out for sure. Yeah. Film recommendations. Um, I thought this time around, rather than going to great lengths like we did last time, mm -hmm. I thought I'll recommend Ben Lewis's, Ben who we talked about before. He made a documentary on a band called King Adora, which Brits are from the late 90s, early 2000s might be uh, familiar with. They also made uh, other documentaries, one about social anxiety as well. If you head over to his Vimeo page, which is Tom Benedict Lewis, all one word, you'll find his films there. He's got a lot of his corporate stuff up, but uh, in amongst that, you'll you'll find his great little short films. Um, They're worth checking out. Yeah, for sure. Mike, when you're not on camera, you do an awful lot of writing and performing live, yeah. and you've yeah. got something coming up. Yeah, I've got um, a production coming up uh, that's going to be performed at the Dove House Theatre in Solihull in the West Midlands. Um, this is taking place on the 18th, 19th and 20th of October mm -hmm. um, and it's called Write Off. There was a bunch of writers uh, all asked to submit plays to be considered. They all had to be 10 minutes long and um, five of them were selected to be performed here at uh, the Dove House Theatre. Mm -hmm. um, I perform in three of them and I've written a fourth one. Gosh. Um, so yes, I'm heavily involved mm -hmm. in uh, getting that off the ground. But yeah, please come, please check it out. Uh, if you go to uh, the Dove House Theatre, if you're looking up online, um, tickets are available. And uh, please come, it'd be great to see you all there. And the Dove House Theatre has got a bit of a nostalgic uh, connection for us. That's where we, yeah. that's where you auditioned. That's where I first met you. You auditioned for one minute's there. Yeah. And that's where we filmed. Uh, how many segments did you film oh, with us there? Um, at least, at oh. least, I think three. Oh, really? Okay. I think three. I know of two, but I think three. Okay. Um, there was the the old fashioned horror with yep. the mummy. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the clock mating yes, right. apprentice. Yes. Definitely those two. I remember doing that. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't stop laughing as we were throwing items. That's right. And me and the actress were throwing mm -hmm. items at each other. You were trying to say cut, but failing miserably. Yeah. I don't think I've ever sort of got over um, <laughs> the, the actor dynamic. Because um, like, you could just be having like a normal conversation with the actors about, you know, uh, what they did last night, what you know, where they're going on holiday, and then... You know, you, you yell action, and then there's character lobbing stuff at somebody else, and it's just it always cracks me up. Um, it was great because me and the actors, we were right from the start. We were yeah, we got on like a house on fire. We were really good with each other. So yeah. Anyway, next time on this Indie Filmopolis, um, we may or may not have a special guest, but in either case, we'll have more stories from making our worst enemy. We'll have more movie trivia, more recommendations and reviews. So yeah, get in touch. Send us questions and recommendations for features, shorts and crowdfunding campaigns for other shorts or features. And we may even back them. We may even uh, submit uh, something to them. Um, please also check out our, our sites. The website is Own Worst Enemy Movie. That's all one word. OwnWorstEnemyMovie.com uh, the Twitter, which is at Own Worst Enemy UK, 
and our new Twitter page exclusively for this podcast, which is at Filmopolis. That is P-H-I-L-M-O-L-O. P-L-I-S. I'm really pissed off that we couldn't have Indie Film Opulence because it's, it's one character too long. Damn. But yeah, check out the Twitter at Filmopolis. Yeah, we're building that at the minute. So yeah, please please follow that one. Uh, that's the best way to get into touch, questions. Yeah. And uh, we've got the Instagram um, for yourself, which is Filmmaker. That's P-H-I-L-M underscore M-A-K-E-R. Mm-hmm. Loads of behind the scenes photos on there. You'll see... Ben's photos that we were talking about before, yeah, and, and the also, posters. You, and you'll see that also on the Facebook page if mm-hmm. you do the search for Unwest Enemy Movie. The, the, right. the pictures are up there as well. So great. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast as well on either SoundCloud or iTunes. Anyway, we need to go. Uh, we can see a horde of zombies stumbling towards us, and Phil's gone off to load up the shotgun. Thank you very much. Goodbye.